Whew, what a song, man. Uh, okay, before we begin, let me pray. Father God, um, man, thank you so much for being alive. Thank you so much, uh, gosh, like the song said, for your reckless love. Um, Lord, I pray that these be your words and not my own. I pray that you open up all of our hearts and minds to hearing what you have to say today. Thank you so much for loving us and still being here. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Excellent. I got good morning. My name is Sush. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Grace. I, it's me again. I get to share a message with everyone today. Um, so I have to give a disclaimer, and I think many of you can recite it with me. Uh, everybody's laughing, right? I have to give a disclaimer. Um, for those of you that have never seen me preach, you will hear, you can say it with me. Sush is a pacer. He paces when he gets up here. Um, I have to warn people, I have uh, given presentations, I have tried, and I do stand still. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting, like as I, I, you know, Sung prompts me, he says, hey, do you have a message? I say, sure. Um, so I practice it, I, I marinate on it, I kind of mull it over, but I never memorize it. I just, that's just not the way I work. And uh, when I get up here, I just feel like I need to just be in process with you guys as he's telling me what to tell all of us. And so when I, part of that is just me pacing. <laughs> it's just what it is. I'm sorry. I know it's distracting. I ask for your forgiveness. And I just ask that you allow me to be authentic with you, okay? All right. So the secret to miraculous transformation, that's our talk for today, our sermon for today. How are we going to do it? So I like giving roadmaps. So first, I want to tell you why. You know, why this has been on my heart, what God has been doing in my heart regarding this issue of miraculous transformation. Then I, I want to talk about a scripture that God's been using in my life to reveal something to, which, to me, which is uh, Acts 1, 3 through 9, and 2, 1 through 13. And just an episode of miraculous transformation in the lives of the apostles. And then I want to tell a story, a story of something that God allowed for me to partner with him in, um, in terms of miraculous transformation in the world, and then we're going to end with some guidelines and questions. So why? Why are we talking about this? Uh, you know, I, God's been really challenging me on this intersection, this intersection of rationality and mirac miraculous transformation, miracles. What do I mean by miraculous transformation? I mean, first, change, right? So change in the world or change in ourselves. And Primarily, I want to stick with a biblical perspective here. So it's change that is Christ-centered. It's change that's making the world more like the kingdom of God. Okay? Or making you more like the kingdom of God. And on some level, it is awe-inspiring. It is miraculous. It is unexplainable. And that is, on some level, connecting for me with this notion of rationality. And I was thinking recently, you know, I've spent my entire adult life studying science. You know, I went to undergrad, went to medical school. Uh, I just recently finished my training. I actually got hired on as faculty at the University of Michigan. And incredibly, as I'm reflecting on this, God was telling me, hey, you've, you've done something really important. You have built this foundation of scientific reason. You have built this foundation of logic and rationality that you then hold on to, right? You leverage to go out into the world and to make a difference, to make a difference. And that's not wrong. God was telling me, it's not wrong, but you're missing something. You're missing something. There's a gap, and it impacts your ability to partner in miraculous transformation in this world. It impacts your ability. And I'm going to suggest that this might be pertinent for some of you, particularly in Ann Arbor, where we're a fairly rational society. 
We like to emphasize that. So that's why we're talking about it. At least for me, I can tell you that. So now the passage. So I'm going to look, I want to use Acts 1, 3 through 9, and 2, 1 through 13 to illustrate miraculous transformation in the lives of the apostles. We're just going to talk about Acts 1 right now. It's going to be on the screen. The word of the Lord. He, he being Jesus, he presented himself alive to them, the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when, he, well, I'm sorry, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So where are we? We're in the book of Acts. Acts is a book in the New Testament of the Bible. And the purpose of Acts is to be a historical accounting of the early church. We are essentially supposed to be getting the details, the occurrences, the events, and the characters that were integral to building what we now have, which is the church. And we are now in Acts 1, at the beginning of Acts 1, and what is being told to us here are the last days of Jesus in his flesh on earth, the last days. And in the beginning, we're seeing that Jesus has died, he has been in the grave, he has conquered it, he has been raised from the dead, and he is now presenting himself to many people, including the apostles, as proof, as proof that I am alive. I am no longer dead, I have conquered the grave. He is alive, he is presenting himself, and then and then we arrive at this final conversation. These are the la arguably the last words that Jesus ever spoke before he went into heaven. And so at first, Jesus says, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's pointing to a future occurrence. He says, you will receive the Holy Spirit and you need to wait in Jerusalem. And then there's this amazing question, this incredibly important question that the apostles ask. Lord, Will you, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? It's an incredibly important question because it gives us a window into the souls of the apostles and what they desire. So I want to cover it just a little bit. So this question, on the one hand, is completely rational. It is logical. It is understandable. It is built on centuries of teaching and is built on teaching that the apostles have learned their whole lives. It's actually in the Old Testament. So this is built on a rationality, a foundation of rationality that says that the Messiah will restore the kingdom to Israel. And there is a very specific ask here, a very specific ask. It is not just a theoretical restoration. It's not just a spiritual restoration. It is a military-based restoration. It is a conquering-based restoration. There is a specific ask and a specific agenda from the apostles here. But we look at the question and we see that God is not really the center of that question. 
God is an agent to an end, and the end and the center is Israel. And we know, based, oh, did I push it twice? Oh, sorry, I missed my slide. Okay, we'll go on to the next part. So the next part is Jesus' response, so we'll read it together. The first part, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So the first aspect of Jesus' response is, this is not for you to know. You shouldn't be knowing this. Notice he doesn't correct the apostles. He doesn't tell them, I'm not going to restore Israel. Right? He's not saying, I'm not going to do that. He's telling them, you don't need to know this. And I'll go so far as to say, he's insinuating, why are you asking me about this? Why is your vision so limited? And then he goes on in the next part of the verse, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in all Samaria and to the end of the earth. He blows the doors off of the rationality, blows the doors of what they've been taught, blows the doors off of their expectations. He is telling them, yes, I am about Israel, but I am about the entire world. I am here to restore and redeem all mankind. It is not just about Israel anymore. And notice also there's future tense here, right? You will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be made witnesses. It hasn't happened yet to the apostles. Okay? And when he says you will be made witnesses, it is appropriate for this word in the Greek is martis. Martis. It's the root for martyr. And it's appropriate. It's a prophetic word. Because nearly every single one of the apostles would be martyred for their faith. The same men that abandoned him on the cross. And yet, we know from the question, and we know from the response that Jesus has, that the apostles are not yet the men who are going to miraculously change the world. They are not yet those men. I don't know about you guys. I, I really don't. But to me, this is incredible. It's incredible to me because Jesus is right there, right? He is literally right in front of them before their very eyes. They gave up everything to follow this man for three years, putting all their hopes and dreams into him. And then all of that was dashed in a moment when he died, when he was crucified, and they lost everything. And they are standing around, and then boom, he's there. He's alive. He's presenting himself as proof for 40 days, and still... Still, they are not the men yet. They are not these world changers. They are not the men that are going to miraculously transform this world. There is something else that is needed that is beyond the old way of thinking. What is that? He's been pointing to it, and we'll read about it now. So this is Acts 2. This is the next part. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the apostles, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they were filled with new wine. I love that last line. It's a great line, right? They're drunk, right? Like, what's going on here, right? It's a great scene. It's a great scene. But what happens here? What is the change? The change is the Pentecost. Change is the Holy Spirit being rained down upon the apostles, and immediately they are different. They are changed. And notice what they are prompted to do. They don't become conquerors. They don't pick up swords and start fighting for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. They start speaking in the tongues that were represented in Jerusalem, and they start speaking about God himself, about the mighty works of God. Center of the story is not Israel anymore. Israel is a part of the story. The center of the story is God, God himself. And notice the reactions. Bewilderment, amazement, astonishment, perplexing, mocking accusations of being drunk. Take whatever you will from this passage there is, undeni- there is one undeniable fact. It is irrational what is happening. Unexplainable, illogical. There is no scientific rationality back then. As a scientist, I would assert that there is no scientific rationality right now to explain how this occurred. Unexplainable. And yet that is what the Holy Spirit prompted them to do. Okay? And it is a fact that the world would never be the same. After this moment, literally the next passage is Peter preaching probably the greatest sermon in the history of the church, and then 3,000 people are saved. We have liftoff. Humanity's never the same. What is the secret to miraculous transformation in this world? I'm going to give you two things to ponder. Number one, the Holy Spirit is central to miraculous transformation in a broken world, in a world that still has suffering and sin and brokenness. The Holy Spirit, the living presence of God, is central to that process. But number two, if you want to partner in transformation in yourself and in the world, you cannot just have bounded rationality. It is important, but you can't just have that. It is essential to also have spirit-led Rational irrationality. That seems contradictory. Sush, what does that mean? Glad you asked. I'll tell you. So, spirit-led rational irrationality is this. That if you engage with the Holy Spirit, if you make that an emphasis in your life, he is going to prompt you or tell you to do or think things that are irrational. You will not be able to explain. And the rationality in that is to have a healthy, biblical-based process of engaging in those ideas or actions. Not to just forget them or cast them aside because you can't explain them. Or to just do or think it or believe it without any deep thought. You must have a process that is biblically-based in order to deal with these irrational musings that the Spirit gives you. And if you can do that, If we can do that, if I can do that, which I'm not very good at that, to be honest, if I can do that, there's no limit to what God can do in us and through us. There's no limit. So this is my example. It's the example that I'm going to give. There's many examples, but I'll give this one. So this is my story. The story is Naamah. 
what is NAMA? NAMA is a microfinance nonprofit that, my, that Jonathan Shaw uh, and I started in, in uh, Eastern Congo about two years ago. Um, Jonathan Shaw, for those of you that don't know, Jonathan Shaw and Kate Shaw are missionaries in Eastern Congo that are supported by our church, and actually my wife and I support them as well. But three years ago, Naima didn't exist. The idea for Naima didn't even exist. And uh, my wife and I, we f- just felt this kind of urging to go. So we just, so that's actually a story in and of itself, but we just magically made it over to Eastern Congo. Um, and we were there just to see what God had for us. And my, both my wife and I are physicians, so we, we had this very reasonable thought, right? Not a wrong thought, not a dishonoring thought to God, but a, on some level, a limited thought. It was, we're supposed to partner medically, right? I'm supposed to find, my wife or I are supposed to find some sort of clinic or something that would use the expertise that we had gained, that God had given us to leverage for the world. And so we went there, we met with hospitals, we met with clinics, we met with uh, uh, providers and clinicians, and... Nothing opened. No opportunities came up. And I remember praying about this and just meditating, and I just still couldn't shake this urge. I was like, man, there's something else. Something else. And, and so I'll, I'll never forget this day. It was early in the morning. It was John, John Shaw sitting right next to me. Sun was coming up over the field at his house, and we were drinking coffee, drinking Congo coffee. I'll never even forget the taste of the coffee. And maybe it was the coffee, maybe it was the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you it was the Holy Spirit. But an idea came to me. An idea came to me. And it was, I'll explain later, it was completely illogical for me to have this idea. I asked John, I said, hey, John, is there anybody investing time, money, and resources into vulnerable, high-risk people in Congo? people who have been victims on the, of, of rape or violence and are on the margins of society. Is anybody doing that? Is anybody doing that? John thought about it. said, huh, no, not really. And I said, hey, what do you think? You think that's something we should do? Thought about it, and he said, yeah, I think we should try and take that on. Now, Naima started that day, but I want to tell you why that doesn't make any sense. So did John or Sush, did John or I, have any expertise regarding these issues? Did we have microfinance experience? Did we, had, we, had we even been a part of a microfinance organization? Did we have a finance degree? Did we have a business degree? Did we have an economics degree? Had John or I ever taken an economics class in college? Nope. No expertise. Now, maybe you're asking, hey, you guys must have had money, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars lying around. I'd love to have that. Those money lying around that we could hire the expertise, right? Set this foundation that then they could bring in and we could do this in a way that's just a little bit more under control and reasonable. Nope. Didn't have the money lying around. So we weren't paupers. I'm not saying we were poor, but my wife and I were in training. Uh, John's wife was a stay-at-home mom and John was a graduate student. So there wasn't a lot of cash lying around. But maybe we had time, right? So maybe John and Sush were entering a season where there were going to be hours and tens and hundreds of hours available. And we were going to be able to just, just make the mistakes ourselves, reinvent the wheel, build the organization ourselves, and do it and just spend the time. Nope. So I was entering training 65 to 80 hours a week for at least a year, if not more. Uh, my wife was also entering training, so I, we were busy 
uh, just trying to make sure our, uh, we were following the Lord and keep our marriage healthy. And then little did I know, my wife was going to get pregnant in six months. Uh, so there was not a lot of time for me. Uh, for John and Kate, Kate was starting a primary school in Congo. John was on faculty at UCBC, at the university there. And oh, by the way, John was writing his dissertation, finishing his PhD. So I, mean, I, I there was no time, not hardly any time. And finally, did we at least have a safe, stable context, right? A place where the political climate is stable, that the Shahs are there, whatever little we could do, that they could at least oversee it and make sure that things would go okay. There's a theme. No. So I kid you not, the month that we were about to roll out our first project, their political instability um, began, Violence erupted, and the Shahs had to be evacuated, and they were gone for months. So we had no expertise, no money, no time, and not even a stable political climate. That is nuts, and I'm just telling you it right now. And I'm not being hyperbolic. This is the truth. And I wouldn't be bringing it up if God didn't work a miracle. And so I don't want to make this about Naema. I just want to tell you what God can do if you're open to crazy ideas. So on the left is John Shaw, on the right is Butoto Munduzi. Butoto is our now executive director of Naema in Congo. Um, two months ago, the United Nations approached Butoto and John. It was the head of the United Nations Eastern Congo Mission. They, he, I should say, wanted to talk about Naema and Naema only. He had heard about what God was doing through Naema. And what resulted were, was essentially an hours-long conversation about how the UN could partner with Naaman. And the, one of the words, one of the sentences he said was, I have been waiting for something like this for a long time. Funny, probably was God telling him it, right? Totally a miracle, totally inequipped in terms of me and John, right? It had nothing to do with us. Everything to do with God literally saying, hey, I'm going to do this. You want to come with me? Right? And we were changed. And we got to partner as Congo's being changed. So I'm going to point out that I think it's important for us to have both rationality and irrationality in our lives. Now, question may be, well, how do you do this? You know, you're talking to me about Holy Spirit. You're talking to me about rationality. You know, it's hard to kind of grasp what this looks like. What do you do, Sush, or what are some things you've read about? Well, you know, these are some guidelines that I have for you guys. Um, they're mine. They're not from a book, uh, but there's scripture behind them. I thank my wife for helping me kind of make sure that the scriptures were good. Um, but they're, essentially, these are the guidelines that I use to essentially make sure that I'm having a process when I have these musings. So number one, you have to make room for silence and solitude in your life. Have to make room for silence and solitude. So my experience is the Holy Spirit, for the most part, speaks in whispers or gentle nudgings. He's not going to shove you in the right direction every time, most of the time. So you have to make room to take notice. You have to make room to take notice. Number two, acknowledge and embrace the discomfort of the Holy Spirit. Boy, this, this is a hard one for me. I can't even tell you. Um, usually... When I'm trying to do this and something happens, it's either God telling me sin in my life or something I can't explain. And both of those are really uncomfortable. 
And I find that if I don't at least exercise the muscle and discipline of staying there, the work never gets done, either in me or I can't be a part of it. Okay, so acknowledge and embrace the discomfort of the Holy Spirit. Number three, Scripture is the compass. So I'm going to give a little analogy here. So let's say you've made that room. Holy Spirit has given you a prompting. Let's make the analogy that's a destination. Okay, it's a destination. You're on a ship. Okay, you're on a ship. Scripture is the compass to ensure two things. One, that you're appointed towards the direction that you want to be going, and that the direction is north. The direction is towards the kingdom of God. Okay? We are imperfect human beings. There have to be compass, compasses and reference points to ensure that the things that we're hearing or seeing from the Lord at some level have an authority over them. Because we're not that authority. Okay? Scripture is the compass to ensure that the direction you're going is pointed towards the kingdom of God. Number four, if Scripture is the compass, community is the refining rudder. Okay, so you know the direction, you're headed in the right direction, but you need course corrections, you need discussions, you need processing, you need people who are following Christ themselves to give you authentic and real feedback. Right? So Scripture is the compass, community is the rudder, and finally, patience. Patience, patience, patience. You won't be good at this overnight. But if you can stay steadfast, if you can stay true, then the Trinity is made whole in our lives, right? That we emphasize not just God the Father and his authority. We don't just remember and emphasize God the Son and his sacrifice. We also have an emphasis and a living aspect of the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the beauty of the gospel, right? The, the formula to miraculous transformation in this world from a biblical perspective is the Trinity, right? We don't have to be the answer. He is. And if we as a church, right, if, if we can be people who on some level focus on all three, who build that into our lives, then we're not just going to be people who believe miracles can happen. We'll be a people who expect them to happen. We're going to be a people who are a source of miraculous transformation in this world. And I would leave you with this notion that the world really, really needs that right now. Let's pray. <sighs> Father God, man, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for the Trinity. I thank you that there are just unbelievably alive and real and atoning aspects of, of you and for you. God, I pray that you would just be with us and help us to understand who it is that your Holy Spirit is and that you would help us to be enabled to be transformative agents and to be transformed in this world. It's in Christ's name. Amen.